you would remain standing for the reading of God's word, we're going to read chapter 2 from the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endurance for my name's sake and have have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogues of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be fruitful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes 
like a flaming of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Would you please join with me in prayer as we uh, open God's word together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word of light and life and truth. Father, we thank you for the love, the care, the guidance, the direction, the instruction that you give us through your word. And Father, through your word this morning, as we are gathered here together, Father, would you reveal your son, Jesus, to us? Would you reveal more of your gospel to us? And Father, would you reveal to us how through them we can bring you glory? And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we're on letter number three of the seven letters to the churches. And um, as we looked in chapter one, and as Ralph laid some groundwork, you know, this is a discussion of things that are now, right? Things that were occurring then and things that are in this age and occurring now. And there's some similarities. I think you begin to see some parallels. And we've talked about some of those parallels between the different letters, how they all follow um, in many ways, a similar format and a similar setup and a similar layout. And the thing I want to draw our attention to today um, as we enter into looking at the Church of Pergamos is do you notice how all seven letters open in the same manner? They open speaking of Christ, the head of the church, the author and the finisher of our faith. Each of the letters, each opening verse is a revelation of a different truth about Christ. It's not the same pat pattern in every verse. It's not the same description of Christ in every verse. And what I want to encourage you is maybe as you reflect back on the messages, as you listen to today's messages, and you listen to the next ones that we're going to do here on these churches, is you 
listen to and think about these messages. See how the attribute of Christ that's given in this first opening line exactly fits the need for the challenges and the issues that each of those churches were facing. It's just what the church needs to overcome. Christ is what the church needs to overcome. For example, the first church was Ephesus, who had lost their first love. And what we're told there is Christ is the one that walks among them, right? In amongst the seven candlesticks, which are the seven churches. Isn't that what that church needed? They needed to draw close to Christ again. And he needed to let them know he was close in walking with them. Or the church in Smyrna last week, which was facing tremendous persecution, right? In the opening verse, Christ is revealed as the first and the last and the eternal one that holds them in his hand. What encouraging words for someone who's facing persecution to know that Christ has been there before, he will be there after, and he'll continue throughout eternity to hold them in his hands. So all seven churches, as we see, face challenges, and most face some other internal issues, ones they could only overcome in Christ. I think there's a direct application to us here today as well. We all face problems and challenges, don't we? in our lives, and maybe some of them are not likely, most of them are not dissimilar from the challenges that we see here in the church. We have issues in relationships between husbands and wives. We have issues at times within families, within siblings. We have an issue of sin that we need to deal with. We suffer loss. We experience conflict. Maybe despair at times. We face challenges and issues. And I think the hymn we sang this morning is very appropriately dovetailed in the message because it's in Christ alone that our hope is found and our guidance and our direction is going to be found for all these issues that we face, just as we see how in Christ alone these churches in the letters that we read will find their help. So as we begin here, I want you to consider when you face a problem or an issue or challenge, where is it that you often turn? Where do you turn first? And be encouraged that we need to turn to Christ first. The gospel of Christ is the solution to all human issues that we face. Christ alone is sufficient to save. He's sufficient to guide. He's sufficient to direct. He's sufficient to protect. And he's sufficient to transform believers. So with that word of introduction, let's look at verse 12 and see what kind of issue, a foreshadowing of the issue that might be here at the church in Pergamos. Verse 12. And to the angel in the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. Okay, this is a foreshadowing of the issue at Pergamos. It reveals an attribute of Christ which will help this church in Pergamos overcome the issues it faces. We have Christ standing here with a sword in hand, a sharp, two-edged sword. Do those words sound familiar to you? Does the thought of a sharp, two-edged sword, I hope, immediately leaps to your mind the word of God? As we see in Revelation 1.16, we've already heard this spoken. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. Maybe a verse that ties it even more directly into the word. Hebrews 4.12. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the spirit, into the joints, and the marrow. It is discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Christ is here before the church, a church in need, wielding the sword of truth. He stands with the sword in his hand, the sword which would bring the word of God into the situation that they're having. He's prepared for battle. But what battle is it? Right? We're not given here yet just what battle. But there is a battle to be fought. And Christ is holding the sword which will win the day. We'll see as we look down through the issues here at the Church of Pergamos. Christ's cutting solution to the slipping away from truth in Pergamos. So I guess that would be the, the headline here. There's my summary sentence. Christ's cutting solution to the slipping away from the truth in Ephesus. And I want to challenge you to think we individually might not be that different than the church at Pergamos at times. We'll divide this into three sections. First, we'll look at the state of the church in Pergamos. What was the environment that they found themselves in? We'll then look at the specific issues that Christ needs to wield the sword of truth to help this church through. And then we will look, as always, Christ supplies the solution. We are not left without the solution. So let's take a look at this church of Pergamos and what they were facing. Reading on in verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. I'm going to pause there for a second. That's a common phrase in all these letters. Christ speaks about how he knows something of those churches. Right? He knows them. I know thy works and where you dwell. Let's not pass over these words. Christ knows everything that we're facing. He knew everything this church was facing. He knows everything each of us face every day for eternity. He's close. He's involved. He's not far off watching us with interest or even with disinterest, as some might put forward at times. But he's a close an intimate, a personal Savior, well acquainted with the circumstances and the surroundings. In fact, it's more than he's well acquainted with them. He is using all those circumstances and surroundings for our good, to conform us into his image. Romans 8, 28 and 29 speak of that, correct? So Christ doesn't only kind of watch us, right, and try to help us maybe through the situations that we face in life. Christ places us there. And he guides and directs us with his tender, loving care through each of those circumstances. Believers, we are never alone. We are never alone. So on to the specific challenge here for the church at Pergamos. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. Both at the beginning and the end of what we've just read there, it speaks of Satan. So what was going on here in Pergamos? Well, Pergamos is a real place. Um, it no longer exists in a usable form. So it's ruins now. 
but it actually is in the same general neighborhood as we've been, right? We started in Ephesus, we worked up a little ways north to Smyrna, and now we've gone just a little farther north to Pergamos. So all these churches are in what was called Asia Minor, which would today be present-day Turkey. Um, Ephesus, which we saw first, was known as the political center. Smyrna was a trade center. Pergamos, where we are now, is the religious center of that culture at that time. So what did the religious center look like? They had the largest altar in the world to Zeus. They had multiple temples to gods, pagan gods, the goat god, the snake god. They even had one to the god of wine and drunkenness. Are we starting to get a feel for what Ephesus, or excuse me, Pergamos, might have looked like? They also had temples to men. The Caesars would go there to build temples to themselves. And that was a progress in the Roman world where the Caesars, man, began to be elevated to the status of God. They were also hosts to the ancient religion of Babylon. The ancient religion of Babylon is something we call the New Age. Folks, there's nothing new about the New Age, right? It's the old, it's the old heathen way that is Satan has kept alive through the years. So they're very steeped, right? Very surrounded, very much in the religions of the world. They also had the greatest library of the time, filled with the wisdom of man. So let's think about what it's like to be a believer in Pergamos. You're daily surrounded by great error an intense cultural pressure to paganism, moral relativism, hedonism, idolatry, humanism. Does Pergamus sound familiar? Does Pergamus sound at all familiar? Do we think that of our culture at times? Don't we as believers sometimes feel hemmed in on all sides by these same things? Church, I want to encourage you. This word is alive and active. It's current. It speaks to today. It needs no new revision. It needs no revelation. It needs no updating or help to make it relevant. God penned it as the word of God, and it is sufficient for today. There's a power behind everything that was going on in Pergamos, a power behind all these isms, paganisms, relativisms, hedonisms, And that power is clearly identified here in verse 13. We hear of Satan's seat. That would be a throne. And we also hear that is where Satan dwells. He was dwelling in Pergamos. Satan has a dwelling place. Satan is finite. That's one thing we can learn from this passage. He is not like God. He desires to be like God, but he is not. He is confined. He is finite. Right? But he is not without power. Right? How is he described in Peter? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may, whom he may devour. Be not mistaken, we have an enemy named Satan. He's real. He has power. He's finite. And secondly... He's limited by God. Think about Job, right? Hopefully one where many are familiar with. Satan's the one that brought the plagues and the issues on to Job. But before he could do that, what did he need? 
he needed God's permission. Right? God needed to say, yes, you, Satan, can touch Job. Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. So although powerful, he's finite, he's limited, and best yet, he's defeated. His doom is sure. He was defeated by Christ at the cross. We don't defeat him. It's not within our power, within our scope. But Jesus Christ defeated him at the cross. And God has equipped us as believers because we are in Christ. So as we walk in Christ, we can walk in freedom from Satan's rule. One author that I was reading this week said, we as believers have four citadels, four strong fortresses that make us invincible over Satan's kingdom when we go to do the will of God. That's an important thing to remember at the end. We are only invincible when we're going about the will of God. And those are revealed in Ephesians. Turn to me, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Familiar passage in terms of dealing with Satan. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. The first citadel that we have is our union with Christ as believers. The fact that we're in Christ. Look in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Right? That's where our strength comes from. We defeat Satan because we are strong in the Lord. The second citadel that we have is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It speaks in the second part of verse 10, in the power of his might. Right? The Spirit is the power of God's might. So we can stand against Satan because we are in union with Christ. We can stand against Satan because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that's given to us as believers. Then the familiar part of the passage, verses 11 on down through 17, the armor that Christ supplies to us to fight the battle with. The armor of God. It's supplied by God. The whole armor. We have the loins girt with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, we're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, the helmet of salvation, and look, what's last on the list? We also have the sword. We saw here that Christ bears the sword, and because he bears the sword, we can also bear the sword of the word of truth. The final citadel that we have in standing against Satan as we do God's will is in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. We have the power of prayer as well. So what we see is for the battle that's occurring here, against the isms, against Satan and his devices and his designs here for the church of Pergamos and also in our lives. Christ is armed and ready. And he has armed us for victory as well. We see also this church, even the first mention of a martyr. They also suffered the loss of a church member through martyrdom. This Antipas. And it was the first of what would become many at the church in Pergamos. But in spite of all this, 
in the face of all this, look what Christ says to this church. You hold fast to my name. You have not denied my faith. Even in the face of all that's going on against them, what has this church been able to do? Through the power of Christ, they've been able to face all this, and they've held fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny their Savior or his deity. So as we think about the issues facing Pergamus, I'd like to ask ourselves a couple questions. Are we in the battle? Are you even in the battle? Are you aware that the world is out there pulling? Are you aware that Satan is prowling? And are you taking the steps provided by God to protect yourselves and your loved ones? It's hard to fight a battle if we're not aware of it. It's hard to fight a battle if we don't know our weapons. And folks, it's impossible for us to fight this battle without the power of God working in our lives. And along with that, in face of thinking about how this church and all they stood in face of, how well do we stand for the name of Christ and faith in our society? Just in general. Just out there in the world as we walk our days. Or even harder yet, how well do we stand in the face of some kind of persecution? Would Christ look at us and say, I know thy works, and where thy dwell, even where Satan's seed is, and thou hast not denied my faith, my name, and thou hast not denied my faith? Would that be spoken of us? Verse 14, what's the issue in the church? All right, so now we know the culture they were in. We know the courageous stand that they took in the face and the place of that culture. But look at the first word of verse 14 is but. But I have a few things against thee. There were issues. This church had slipped in a way that Christ wants to address as he speaks to them through this letter. Because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. There's two issues here that they're facing. Worldliness has crept into the church. The society that surrounds them has seeped in. And they also are holding a position that's false to the truth, to true doctrine. And these two issues, the reason Christ speaks here and the reason he hates them is anytime the world seeps into the church or anytime the church acts in error, we distort the gospel witness and it needs to be addressed. Christ will act to protect his word. He will act to protect the gospel. So let's be careful to note the circumstances they faced, as grave as they were, as difficult as they were, did not give them license or permission to slip away from the truth. 
Right? He didn't say, it's okay. You've got to pass on this. Those of you who golf, God didn't give him a mulligan, a do-over. Right? He said, I understand the situation, the culture that you live in, the pressures that you are under, the persecution that you're facing, but yet you've fallen away and I need to address this. He wants to lovingly correct them. He wants to help them fight with the truth and lead them to victory. So first, what is this doctrine of Balaam? The story of Balaam is found, I'm going to stop using story, the account of Balaam, right? Because story makes it sound like maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, right? The account of Balaam is found in Numbers. We have the Israelites. It's in Numbers 22 through 25. The Israelites are approaching the promised land. There's a heathen king there that's pretty concerned. Right? He's seeing this large host, successful host, advancing towards him. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll hire a prophet to come pronounce curses on these people. I can't fight them in my own strength, so I'm going to enlist this gentleman named Balaam, a prophet for hire. You pay him money, and he'd give you the prophecy you desired. And then people thought, I get the result that I want. Well, that plan didn't go according to plan. Because when Balaam shows up, he doesn't curse the Israelites. He blesses them three times. Now, we all know the story about the donkey getting there, right? He was waylaid. Right? God stood in front of the donkey, got his attention, got him on the right track. And then he just looked over the host of Israelites and pronounced three blessings on them. You can't curse. The world can't curse what God has blessed. The world can't curse what God has blessed. These people were to be blessed. But the enemy did not give up there. There was then what was called the doctrine of Balaam. So what Balaam did is he told Balak, this leader, this king that wanted the people cursed, he said, I can't curse them, but here's what you can do. You can have your women intermarry with them. You can have them begin to integrate in with your culture. You can just have a subtle influence. You can start to erode at the edges. And that's exactly what they did. Because shortly after this, the Israelites in Numbers 31 had won a great victory. And look what they did. Contrary to the word of God. Now remember, this always seems harsh and severe to us. But it's God's judgment was supposed to fall on the people Israelite conquered. They were to save and spare none because of this issue. They're returning victorious from battle, and Moses looks out and says unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Mixing with the world and its religions was continually a pattern of defeat for Israel. Every time they got mixed in, right, it led to defeat, and God needed to bring judgment upon them to correct them and bring them back to the same path. They did not obey God to rid their land of evil and slowly began to embrace it. Church, why would we be any different? We need to rid our land of evil. And men, this is our homes. This is where we're kings and leaders over. If we know of things in our homes that need to be out, 
they need to move out. And for all of us, we should not be dabbling in the things of the world, in their philosophies, in their isms, in their teachings. Even in small ways, they'll begin to nibble away and erode. Because in the end, this church was allowing the same idolatry and immorality in their midst that we hear about here back so many years earlier in the book of Numbers. What does James 4.4 tell us about the world and about a believer? Let's look at it together. James 4.4. James 4.4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Please consider, where have you made friendship and mixed with the world? Consider that, church, in light of the word of God. There was a second issue raised here. So in addition to worldliness creeping into this church, into their practices as believers, into their lives... There was this issue of a false doctrine. Verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. They'd adopted some false teaching that was associated with this group called the Nicolaitans. Now, I think scholars have looked, they've searched, and they've come up with really no definite record of what this doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. Okay? It was hated in Ephesus, right? It's rifed in the churches at this time because it's spoken even of back in Ephesus. Now there, they hated it, right? They didn't adopt it. But now we move a little further down the road to Pergamos and it's a doctrine. It's sitting within the church, this false teaching, whatever it might be. The word itself talks about over, conquer over the laity. So that would be a translation of the word Nicolation. Conquer over the laity. So perhaps, you know, the, the best surmise at this point is the error was the establishment of a priestly order, of placing some of the church over the rest of the church. Folks, the ground is level at the cross, right? The church isn't set up that way. We're all part of the body of Christ together. There aren't ones to set up to lord over and to be to an elevated position in the body of Christ. So again, not certain exactly what this false teaching of the Nicolaitans were, but what we do know is they had departed, this church in Pergamos had departed from the truth and had adopted whatever this teaching was. They were sinning by following whatever this lie was and it was hurting the church and its testimony to the gospel and the glory of God because Christ says, which thing I hate. He hates to see the truth distorted in the church. So let's think about this church for a minute. The church at Pergamos had not left the faith, right? They were commended for holding to the faith, but they had allowed the gospel to be twisted by worldliness and error. They didn't completely deny Christ and the faith, but they bought into a lie that twisted it, got it off center, got it off point just a little bit. Satan 
was the active agent here. So what do we know? Satan doesn't need us to completely deny the faith. Right? Now, he would be overjoyed would we do that. But he doesn't need to take us that far. Right? All he's looking for is to twist the truth just a little bit to get us headed down the wrong road, an unproductive road, a hurtful road. Think about the first sin committed in record. It was the sin of Eve, right? Did Satan try to get Eve to deny God and God's existence? No. What did he do? He got her to get a little off the truth, right? He twisted her. He confused her just a little bit. He got her to doubt the nature of God in some way, and that then opened the door for Eve to pursue a sin. So the implication here is that faith from Christ needs to be coupled and walk with obedience to Christ and his word and his truth. Both are vitally important. And faith is the starting point. But from faith, we move on. And we walk, led by the Lord, to walk obediently. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. We'll see this demonstrated in another church, in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. We'll see here how faith is the starting point, but after the milk, right, we need to be meat eaters. Comes the meat, the doctrines of the faith, walking in sanctification, holiness, obediently. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. And I, brethren... Okay, he's speaking to believers. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying, strife, and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So here he's speaking to believers. And he wants to draw their attention to the fact that God's grace, God wants to lead, lead them into a transformed life. They're not going to do it in their own strength. They're not going to do it on their own power. We do it through the word of God, which we see in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. There's two calls here. Verse 12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. But the scriptures don't stop there. Look, but it's God which works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. We don't follow God obediently in our own strength, in our own power, in our own pull yourself up by the bootstraps and God's more gracious than that. Right? He calls us to obedience. He also equips us. In verse 13, he motivates us. For it is God which works into you both to will and to do 
his good pleasure. Working out our salvation is based on God's work in us. God's the reason for our good works and not our own effort. We do not need to try harder. We need to draw closer and follow. Hebrews 2.1. Hebrews 2.1. Take a look there. He's speaking, I think, words that would be very helpful to, these believe, to us as we consider these matters and to the believers that were here in the church. Because they were slipping from the truth, right? The world had come in and gotten their ear. They had twisted a little bit of truth. They were starting to slip away from the true gospel. What's the, re- what's the resource here? Hebrews 2. Therefore, okay, speaking in Hebrews 1, he spoke of just the, the beauty and the glory and the preeminence of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the fullness of our salvation. And then he says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The way to keep from slipping is to give earnest heed to the word of God. The way to keep from slipping is to give earnest heed to the word of God. If we're not daily committing ourselves to look in the word of God, to hear from God through his word, we will slip away. It's only a matter of time. This needs to be our primary source. That'll come up this afternoon, too, when we have extra teaching time. But we need to dig into the word The word needs to be our counselor. We need to see its tie to the doctrines of the faith. We need to know and wield this sword of truth to obey the gospel. So as we consider the slipping in Pergamos, I want to ask, are you in the habit of making a personal study of the truths in the word of God? One thing even to consider as we speak about doctrines here, have you as a family gone through the doctrine statement of the church here? Provide you just a good set of truths to have some handholds on as the world is pressing in on and around us. Is the sword active in your life? Are you wielding the sword? And where has the sword lately revealed maybe some slipping? Right? We're told to hold fast to this word, to keep from slipping. So if we're in the word, it's going to instruct us maybe where we are slipping. Right? The Holy Spirit given to us by Christ will say, what you just read, does that really reflect you? Is that how you think? Is that how you act? Is that how you talk? And finally, thinking on this concept of God as being the reason for our good works and the motivator, are you doing the things you're doing, all the things you're doing? Are they the works that God is leading you to, or are you working out your own salvation on your own? Please don't work out your own salvation on your own. It leads to one of two roads. It leads to pride, I'm the only one doing it the right way, or it leads to despair because we can't work it out on our own. 
We only work out our salvation as we work the works that God's led us to do and directed us to do. So there's the problem in Pergamus, a slipping away from the truth. Let's pick up the sword and see what the solution is. Verse 16, one word, repent. Pretty simple sounding solution. One word, right? Not five steps, not ten steps, not try harder, not pray more, not work harder. Verse 16 tells us, repent. Repent is the only true response to sin, to falling away from what God desires. Here they are told first to repent, and then, or else, I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's the sword again. Repent, return to the truth. Right? There's the two-step plan. Repent and return to the truth. Repent, let's think about that word for a minute. It doesn't mean to say I'm sorry. It doesn't even mean to confess to God what you did. Now those are both parts of repentance. But to look strictly at the definition of repentance, it is to turn away from and head the other direction. It is to be facing this way, to be convicted by God that this is not the way to go, and don't just say, oh, sorry, God, I'm facing the wrong way. Oh, sorry, God, I'm facing the wrong way. No, repent is to say, that's the wrong way. Thank you, God. I'm sorry I was facing the wrong way. Help me to walk in the right way. That's repentance. It's not just saying I'm sorry and going right back to it. Right? It's committing to turn and go a different way. And like all things that God calls us to do with repentance, he goes before us. He leads us. He aids and guides and directs us in that. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. It's going to show us something about repentance that's very important. Paul here giving directions to Timothy and what he should do to those who are false teachers within the church, those who have walked away in error. Sounds familiar to what's going on at Pergamos. And he tells them, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Where does repentance come from? It comes from God. Again, it's not something we work up. But God, the Holy Spirit, his word will work in us. He will give us the gift of the desire to repent before him. And we don't want to shut that out. When the gift comes, we want to receive it. Right? Thank you, God. I do need to repent. Thank you for the gift. Thank you of alerting me to the danger that I'm in. Repentance is a gift of God. But part of repentance is returning to the truth. Folks, we can't spare the sword when it comes to repentance. It's a sharp, two-edged sword. It's made to cut. 
and divide and separate. We cut out that sin and the evil from here, from the church at Pergamos, or from our own lives with the, word, with the sword of the word. You know, it's not a fine-tuning. It's not a little tweezer pluck here, a little you know, pinprick there. It's not like a small splinter that we have when sin gets a hold of us. You know, Matthew tells us in 18, 8 through 10, uh, Jesus speaking, if your eye is causing you to sin, what are you to do with it? Pluck it out, right? Or if your hand, it's better to cast it off. Okay? Now again, we understand there God's not promoting maiming ourselves to remain sinless. What he is saying, though, is it takes drastic measures. It takes a sword. It might take pain to rid ourselves of these things that are encumbering us that we need to repent of. It might involve pain because where the world or false teaching takes root in our lives, it usually sets up shop and stays and it starts to feel a little bit comfortable. Right? It starts to become a welcome guest as opposed to the intruder that it actually is. And so we then need to be willing Again, like Hebrews 4.2, is take up the sharp sword and divide the good from the evil. We need to pick up the word and we need to do blunt force sword surgery (laughs) to remove these sins from our lives. So church, do you heed the command to repent? Is repentance part of your daily walk? Will you allow God to lead you there? Will you just allow him to take you by the hand and lead you to repentance? And I'm aware there could be pain with this. Will you bear the pain of cutting away that website, that book, that form of entertainment, that radio teacher or preacher, who's not speaking the truth to you. No matter how comfortable it might have become, will you take up the sword and will you please cut it away? The conclusion of the matter is in verse 17 for the church at Pergamos. You know, the letter here began with the comforting words that Christ is the warrior, ready to gauge in battle and rescue the church. He held the sword of truth at the ready, the weapon of victory over any issue that that church or we would face. Then through the heart of the letter, we see Christ's cutting solution to the slipping away from truth. Right? The sharp two-edged sword of the word. The cutting solution to the slipping away from truth. The call to repent and return to the truth, return to the true gospel in the pages of Scripture. And he closes with a gospel promise for the one in Christ, the one who lives in victory through him. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear and heed what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, In the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saying he that receives it. It's pretty heavy imagery in there. Now we do really know we're in the book of Revelation. 
But the final verse ends with an encouragement that victory is assured for the believer who overcomes, for the one who faithfully follows the promises of God and rests on them. And there are two great encouragements here. First, the secret manna. Right? To him that overcometh, right? to him who will walk faithfully with me, will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. Overcomers will feed on Christ. John chapter 6. Jesus speaking of himself in verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of heaven. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Same promise that was just given in Pergamos, right? The manna was food that came down for the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. It sustained them daily. They need to go gather it and be in it. Christ, when he comes, says, that manna was a picture of me and what I desire to do in and for and through your lives. Feed on me daily. I am here to feed you daily. But, you know, they had to go gather the manna. We need to, too. We need to feed on Christ. We need to continually, daily, now into eternity, feed on the manna, which is Jesus Christ through his word. There's a second wonderful promise here. So he will feed us daily with his truth, with bread. The second promise comes into this discussion of the stone. And I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. In the culture at that time, when there was a trial, the jury would cast their ballot with stones. White stone, innocent. Black stone, guilty. What stone is going to be cast? What stone are we given on our behalf? Innocent. Are we innocent? No. Are we justified? Has Christ made us innocent? Yes. It's a gift we'll be given. We, are going to, we didn't earn the stone. We'll be given this white stone. And what of the name? A name inscribed on the stone. Boy, the commentaries varied on this one. <laughs> but I think this name written on the stone is the new name we're given when we're adopted as a son of God. It's a new name. It speaks of a new name. We have several here been adopted. We have several pursuing adoptions. And what happens at the adoption? A new name. A new name. We're adopted by Christ. When we become a believer, we are given a new name. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. We are a new creature in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit for all eternity, now designed and motivated to give God glory. So my question here in the conclusion first, 
So are you an overcomer? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's by grace that we're saved through faith. Not of our works. It's a gift of God. Confession is made with the mouth when God speaks to the heart. Have you confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you committed in your heart to live to please him and bring him glory? It's a gift he gives. We were talking about repentance earlier in terms of the believer needing to repent. But God offers the unbeliever the gift of repentance as well. To say, God, I'm on the wrong road. That's the wrong direction. I don't want to head that way anymore. Thank you, Lord, for turning me to the right road. It's his work. And we just, it seems so simple. We need to set our pride aside and accept the gift. Accept the gift of his salvation that he offers to us. Simply in faith. Nothing that we bring to the table. Nothing that we earn. If you can't say this morning, yes, I have been called of God. I have that faith. I have turned to Christ alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. If you can't say that this morning, please seek someone with the word. This reveals all we need to know towards salvation. Seek myself, one of the other elders, your parent, someone in the church you feel connected with or close to that can open this word and help these promises that we're discussing here in the conclusion be true in your life. Do not delay. Please let the sword of truth cut away your resistance and repent this morning. If you do believe, I encourage you to hold fast to his name and his faith. Repent of your errors quickly before they become large growths that the sword needs to cut away. Let the sword of truth cut them away. Feed daily on Christ like manna and live the gospel as he leads you to do it. He has a grateful, adopted child of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. I'm thankful that it is powerful. The two-edged sword was the most powerful weapon at the time, effective for what it was designed to do to the uttermost. And Father, your word is that way. It is the most powerful thing in the life of men. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you that your word reveals Christ to us. We thank you that your word tells the gospel from cover to cover. And Father, may your word and that gospel stir us this week to live for you. We ask this in the only name we can ask, but the all-sufficient name of Jesus Christ. Amen.